After all, I'm delighted to welcome you to the fourth and final of our seminar series on the frontiers of research on creative industries. The events were co-organized by the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Center, PEC, and the Department of Culture, Media and Creative Industries at King's College in London. Um, unfortunately, Asan Baski, director of PEC, who co-organized the event with us at CMCI, cannot be with us today, but he sends his apology, and I'm sure you will, he will be one of the first to watch the seminar as it's being recorded when it comes available online. As you know, we had four seminars planned, and after hosting two at King's College in London in January and February of this year, we've moved the last two seminars online. And I want to thank you, uh, to thank uh, uh, warmly Nesta for hosting uh, and facilitating this online transi transition for the content of our seminars. So today's seminars include three amazing speakers sharing their research on creative industries and intersectional barriers. A note, uh, just a general note on the online nature of the seminar and the possibility to ask questions. You can use the question and answer facility at the bottom of the screen on the black bar and you can type in your questions anytime during the presentation or at the end. You can also vote with your thumbs up if you like a specific question. And at the end of each presentation, we will have uh, a few minutes for question and answers, and I will select some of the questions. I'm sorry that maybe we might not have time to answer all, all of them. And uh, all the speakers have agreed that we will share their email address at the end of the webinar. So you will be able to also email them if you feel there is something specific you want to clarify uh, about their research afterwards. I'm pleased to introduce you now to our first speaker. Uh, this is Dr. Karen Patel from Birmingham City University. Her paper is gonna uh, uh, talk about uh, race, gender, and perception of expertise in craft, and it's entitled, They Think I Don't Know Anything. Thank you. Thanks, you, Roberta. Thanks to the organizers for inviting me to be a part of this seminar. I'm pleased to present my latest work on inequalities in craft. This work is from a two-year AHRC-funded innovation fellowship focusing on diversity and expertise development in the craft economy and is in collaboration with Crafts Council. In the project, we aim to explore the experiences of makers of colour in the UK craft sector, highlighting the barriers and challenges that they face working towards a craft career. In this paper today, I'm focusing on the concept of expertise in craft and how the politics of expertise are bound up in entrenched ideas of what constitutes craft expertise. These ideas are gendered, classed and racialized, and the accounts by the women I have interviewed so far suggest that the politics of expertise shapes their experiences as makers working professionally in the UK craft sector. I argue that in order to address the existing inequalities in the UK craft sector, we need to think about how crafts by makers of colour and by women are judged and valued, and the role of craft organisations and spaces in reproducing patriarchal value judgments about craft. So first I'll say a bit more about the project, which is called Craft Expertise, the work we've done so far and where you can find out more about it. I'll then go into the research itself by first providing some background on expertise as a concept and its meaning within craft. 
then a focus on the politics of expertise, particularly how expertise is gendered, classed and racialised and how this applies in craft. I'll then go through the main themes of my findings so far, which relate to craft and cultural value and the recognition of craft expertise before finishing with some concluding thoughts. So about the project, this is a two year creative economy innovation fellowship, which is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and it's in collaboration with Crafts Council. The project could be extended for another two years pending a follow on bid. More about the project can be found at the website craftexpertise.com. Some of the outputs so far include a conference which was held in Birmingham last year and this included papers and discussions about the current state of craft with case studies from around the world. There's also a Maker Stories podcast series of which there have been two episodes so far featuring interviews with women makers of colour in the UK. A third episode was recorded last week and will be released very soon. You can find the podcast and information about the conference all on the project website. Coming next is a special issue in the European Journal of Cultural Studies on inequalities and diversity in craft. And we're also working on policy recommendations for making the professional craft sector more inclusive, which we hope to engage further with the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre and hopefully a closing event at the end of the project, launching the policy recommendations and other outputs. So on today's paper, I thought first it would be useful to outline what I mean by expertise and what it means in the context of craft. This to some extent draws on my previous work on the politics of expertise in cultural work. And my book on this is out now, if you're interested. Expertise is generally believed to involve knowledge of some sort as described by James Fleck and skill, which is developed over time according to Dreyfus and Dreyfus. In creative and cultural work, including craft, some knowledge of aesthetic codes and classifications is required. And Pierre Bourdieu talked about this in the Rules of Art when he describes artistic competence. In craft, David Pye argues that craft has an aesthetic importance which depends on the creative freedom of making. In a more contemporary Global South context, Annapurna Mamadipudi highlights the craft expertise of handloom weavers in India and she talks about the tacit knowledge that they develop over many years, a natural instinctive knowledge that is not easy to describe or recall. The development of this tacit knowledge takes place over many years with much practice. As Richard Sennett claims in his book, The Craftsman, to become an expert at craft requires around 10,000 hours of work. He describes the benefits of the slow and deliberate process of craft, the obsession with technique and the perfection of skills until the act of craft becomes instinctive tacit knowledge. The definitions of expertise described here help you to clarify how I understand craft expertise and how it's understood in this paper as evolving craft skills and knowledge developed over time and which can be applied instinctively. However, accounts of craft such as Senate's imply that anyone can develop their craft expertise given the time and resources. In my book, I argue that cultural workers' ability to develop and signal aesthetic expertise in the UK context, at least, is dependent on access to resources or capital. 
Signaling expertise is the process of communicating credentials, skills and abilities. In the book, I discuss how cultural workers signal their expertise on social media by displaying work in progress and enhancing their status through sharing endorsements and prominent connections online. However, signaling expertise is not enough. It also needs to be recognised by other prominent people in your field who can help to enhance your status. And some feminist scholars have argued that women's art and creativity has been misrecognised throughout history. For example, Linda Nocklin said that the white male Western viewpoint of what should be considered great art is one that's just unconsciously accepted. Griselda Pollock argues that these conditions persist today and that women's art is often judged in relation to art done by men. And these writers suggest that women's art and creativity has been traditionally denigrated because of the societal expectation of women to focus their energies on domestic responsibilities. So in the current context, craft is seen as an appealing way for women to balance creative work with domestic life as discussed by Susan Luckman. Some forms of craft, particularly fibre crafts, are associated with domestic space and completely separate from art. Rosiska Parker argues that there's a gender division between forms of craft, such as sewing and woodwork, which is inscribed in society. This is fostered by the education system, which still, to quote her, directs boys to carpentry and girls to needlework. Parker also describes how historically, when arts and crafts became professionalised in Western economies, women were marginalised. And in craft, this professionalisation was organised through guilds from which women were traditionally excluded. These institutions help members to identify as experts in their craft, and they required a level of demonstrable expertise to join. As feminist writers such as Nocklin and Pollock and Parker show, women's creative expertise has traditionally been dismissed. This is because what is recognised as culturally valuable or good art is judged against standards set by men. In addition, it's important to consider as well that the judgment of creative expression is also classed and racialised. So for example, Audre Lorde points out how poetry is, could be considered a lesser art form, yet it was the major voice for working class women of colour. This is because poetry requires less resources and time. And she highlights the quote here, how access to art supplies is dependent on class and economic status. While this relates to one's ability to produce art and craft, it also unavoidably feeds back into the judgment of creative work of which forms are valued. So the focus in this paper today is women makers in the UK who are either working towards a craft career or aspire to do, do so. Most of the women interviewed for this research were born in the UK. All of the interviewees have family origins outside of the UK, predominantly from Africa, the Caribbean and South Asia. I've interviewed 15 women in total from various locations around the UK, including London, Birmingham and Newcastle. Participants were asked about their journey into craft and their experiences as women of colour in the sector. I found that throughout their careers, these women have experienced challenges which are related to the intersection of gender, race and in some cases class. Such challenges have made it especially difficult to get their work valued and their expertise recognised as such and thus has hindered their progression 
towards a full-time craft career in the case of some. So onto the first theme from the interviews, which relate to craft and cultural value. Craft's position as a valued, legitimate form of cultural production in the Western context has always been precarious, as Susan Luckman has discussed. Organisations such as Crafts Council tend to promote work that sits at the intersection of craft and high art, work which exhibits an elite level of craft skill and aesthetic expertise. The probability of a maker reaching such heights is slim, as it requires a university education and enough cultural, social and economic capital in order to develop craft and aesthetic expertise, but also get it recognised. As a result, the face of UK professionalised craft is homogenous, dominated by white middle class makers. Almost all of the makers working professionally in the sector mention that their work has been judged on the basis of their ethnicity rather than the work itself. For example, Tina, who's of South Asian heritage and has a jewellery studio in London, described her experience at an open studio event where she works. So she says, at open studios, you have all your work out on display and it's for sale. You can see that this is a workshop. And people have said to me, and usually it's been people of a certain age and a certain demographic, they'll say, is this all made here in the UK? Or do you make this yourself? Or is it made here? Or is it made abroad? Why would they ask me that? So Tina felt that the origin of her work was being questioned because of her ethnicity, uh, the fact that people questioned it was made abroad and not actually made in the workshop where she's literally selling the pieces. She also described instances where her craft expertise and the quality of the work was being questioned by potential customers. And Tina was confident that a white maker wouldn't be asked such questions and described how it was exhausting to deal with. Other makers felt that they were put in a difficult position in terms of the type of work they are meant to produce based on their ethnicity. Rebecca, a jeweller in Birmingham, who's of South Asian heritage, described how she hasn't felt successful in her jewellery career. So she says, it's quite hard to describe myself as a jeweller because people don't always understand. They have a certain perception of either someone who obviously makes Asian jewellery or traditional jewellery, they don't quite get that I'm quite versatile in what I do. My work that relates to my culture doesn't sell. Anita, a craft artist in London, talked about the lose-lose situation she's in, where, to quote her, craft is associated as something uniquely British, so I can't be seen to be doing a British craft because I'm not British. On the one hand, I'm not allowed to do what's British, but on the same extent, I'm not allowed to do what's culturally mine either. So it seems that in order to be successful in the UK professional craft sector and make a living, makers must appeal to the certain demographic which Tina refers to, namely white and middle class customers who will buy the work or predominantly white and middle class gallery owners and curators who select the work. This means that not only is a certain standard expected, but also a certain aesthetic to appeal to these tastes, to the exclusion of other work which sits outside of this framework. Therefore, some of these makers feel they're in a difficult position. They feel they're judged on the basis of their skin colour and the types of craft they're expected to make. 
even when, like Tina and Anita, they try to incorporate their heritage, it's rejected. These examples illustrate Dave O'Brien and Kate Oakley's argument that cultural value is linked to social inequality, whereby specific types of cultural consumption are intertwined with who is able to succeed in cultural production. I suggest also that the link between cultural value and privileged groups feeds into the politics of how class expertise is recognised. The more established professional makers frequently discuss the difficulty they have getting their work recognised. Though they've enjoyed some successes, some of them do not feel successful overall. This might be characteristic of the precarious nature of craft where achievements can be short-lived, makers have to move on to the next project or commission in order to keep a steady income. Even so, some felt that their work has been misrecognised or undervalued. So Rebecca, the jeweller from Birmingham, described how she tried to get into exhibitions and get her work selected. And she felt her work wasn't out there enough conceptually. And because that's, she's sometimes inspired by her culture, it's not considered contemporary. Rebecca's been working as a jeweler for over 20 years. And she felt that in competitions and exhibitions, there's been a shift over the years towards more abstract conceptual craft and she feels her work isn't being recognised for the skill and expertise involved. Instead, it's being judged on its conceptual or abstract qualities. This requires some artistic education, which Rebecca hasn't had. So she's left doubting her own abilities and questioning her career, despite having worked for so long as a jewellery designer. She said that for shows and exhibitions, to quote her, people just want the next new thing. So the emerging designers will get those few opportunities. How do you keep longevity in what you're doing? Rebecca also felt she was at a disadvantage because she was from a working class background. She said, I think that you move in different circles if you come from a different class, and that also creates opportunities. You exude a certain confidence as well if you come from a certain background. She felt that the existing criteria and structures in place automatically disadvantage her and this has left her a bit disillusioned with her career and future direction. So the quote, they want the next new thing, implies that it's somehow less challenging for early career makers to build a career in the sector, but this is not the case. Some of the interviewees at early career stage also have their own difficulties with breaking into a professional craft career and often reference their ethnicity as a potential factor. So Sam, a ceramist from, ceramicist from London, her family is of East Asian heritage and she said she feels like an outsider in craft because she doesn't have the networks to get recognised. Olivia is another early career maker from London and of West African origin who secured a grant to get a studio space in London. Such schemes can help makers get a foot in the door and enhance their chances of recognition. And Olivia said the grant gave her confidence. So to quote her, it gives you a confidence that you can be in a place like this and working with such amazing makers, it gives you a confidence in your work, a confidence in your pricing, a confidence in yourself as a person. I've taken that on regardless of whether I'm black or white and maybe more so because I'm black and I'm in the space where we're so underrepresented. 
it does give me a confidence and no one's going to take that away from me really regardless of the throwaway comments or people asking ridiculous questions or questions that you've never even thought about that can get you to question what it is that you're doing so here olivia references comments she's received which sometimes make her question her work similar to the quote from tina earlier in the paper the confidence olivia has gained from this grant means she can try and shrug off those comments and she's embraced her role as someone representing black makers in a studio which is mostly white this is yet another example of additional judgments and challenges that women makers of colour can face, even when they've made it into a prestigious studio or scheme. A recurring theme throughout the interviews is that the trends and tastes of the professional craft sector, which are aligned to the aesthetics of fine art, make it especially difficult for women makers of colour to build a career in craft and have their craft expertise recognised as such. Perceptions about the types of craft which should be valued are inherently linked to white middle class tastes, which in turn disadvantage anyone who does not fall into that bracket. Attitudes towards makers of colour in craft, which are highlighted in this paper, reinforce the sense that professional contemporary craft is not inclusive. As well as the stories from Anita, Tina and Sam already referenced, Rebecca also talked about how she feels she's treated differently in the jewellery industry. She describes how she deals with trade suppliers such as gold platers, which are male dominated. She said that because she's an Asian woman, they're not used to it at all. They often think that I don't know anything. You just get that attitude. She feels like when she visits trade suppliers, she's looked down upon and they think you don't know what you're talking about when you go and speak to them about your work. All the women working professionally in craft have experienced some form of discrimination, had their expertise questioned or made to feel like an outsider in craft spaces. So we need to rethink how craft is judged and valued. Craft should be judged not only for its aesthetic value, but the level of tacit knowledge, practical expertise and craftsmanship which has gone into it. Craft created by women of colour should be judged on its own merits, not through the prism of their race, gender or class as it can be in the sector. To this end, this paper has highlighted the obstacles that women of colour face when trying to forge a career in craft. Their position and their work are denigrated on the grounds of their race in particular, but also their gender and against aesthetic and conceptual ideas of craft, which are classed. So what to do about this? Raising the visibility of makers of colour in craft is important and on social media groups have mobilised to do this. For example, BIPOC in Fibre is a website established by prominent British knitter Jeanette Sloan. The website is dedicated to highlighting the work of black indigenous people of colour in the fibre community. This website was established after ongoing debates about racism in knitting, which took place predominantly on Instagram during 2019 and is still continuing at, literally as I speak now. Jeanette and two other knitters together raised over £30,000 via a crowdfunding campaign to support the website's creation. It's an example of how makers of colour can gain visibility online, coalesce and help each other. Another knitter involved in this website, Lorna Hamilton-Brown, spoke at the crafts conference that I organised for this project. On the issue of the lack of diversity in craft, she said, I never get invited to the top table. 
So I'm just going to build my own table. At least by building their own table, the expertise of these makers may not be judged against entrenched patriarchal standards about what constitutes good work in craft. Such models which centre on co-creation and collective action are a hopeful point of departure for thinking about how the craft sector could be more inclusive and what organisations and policy can do to support it. And thank you. Thank you, Karen, for the very interesting presentation. We have already a question here for you, but uh, just telling, reminding everybody that you can type in your question in the Q&A uh, area. You can find it at the bottom on the black bar of Zoom screen. Um, the first question inquires about how these uh, people you spoke with kind of uh, um, connected their own, obviously, ethnic background and cultural background with also some form of regional identity. So whether that regional identity also played a part in their marketing or just in their discourse? Um, not massively. Um, there's a couple of makers I spoke to who are based in Lewisham and they were very proud um, that they were based there in a, in a very diverse um, area and um, made no secret of, of that either and actually felt that um, the sort of creative and cultural diversity of Lewisham could be better um, promoted actually. Um, by craft organisations, so that there was that. But other than that, um, not really, not really regional identity. Okay, uh, I've got a quick question which asks about how you recruited the participants uh, in your research. Yeah, so the Crafts Council did a call. Um, so I got, I reached out to some people through that. I, this, this particular project actually builds on a previous 12-month postdoc, which I did. So I snowballed from the interviewees there through uh, my own networks in Birmingham, um, through the Crafts Council directory as well, and on Instagram as well. If, um, by following by pocket fibre, and other networks like that. Uh, that's I've reached out directly to people. I've put out calls for participants on Instagram as well, and people have got in touch that way. We have uh, two questions which have got an international dimension. That one asks if you are going to recruit or expand, I suppose, outside uh, um, you know the UK in terms of makers and looking at those. Uh, um, dynamics and the other one comes from South Africa and sort of uh, reflects on the on the struggle obviously for craft makers to um, value their products beyond the products value of the materials so to actually add value through their symbolic and artistic work and how you know you might be able to you know we might be able to actually make a bit more of a better argument for that value yeah and um... On the recruitment, I am hoping to, if I get additional funding for this project, um, hoping to expand to, to recruit from different countries. Um, so fingers crossed with that. In terms of the cultural value, it's, it's what uh, Mami Dipudi um, 
mentions in her paper about the Indian handloom weavers and how there's so much craft expertise in what they do, but it's just devalued. So I'm thinking about this um, in terms of the theoretical framework and how we rethink how these types of how uh, different types of craft are valued based on the the tacit knowledge, the the practical craft skill. Uh, rather than their relation to traditional frameworks of, of cultural value and aesthetic judgment. Um, I've got a room maybe for another question or, or maybe two quick ones. So one was about uh, what do you think policymakers and funders can do to support broader view of what should be recognised and value, so the kind of uh, policy implication of your work? I think, um, I think it's important first off to just get more people of colour, more working class people involved in all gatekeeping organisations, decision makers and, and just have more diverse judging panels to, to judge the work because uh, I think that's a problem. Um, and just uh, the makeup of these organisations as well and the culture really needs um, looking at as well. Uh, there needs to be, you know, as well as, I know there's interview schemes and stuff going on, but does that actually translate to hiring people? Um, so I think there needs to be um, cultural change within organisations um, and policy can support that through, well, we're going to explore that with the Crafts Council in due course. But I think um, supporting platforms such as BIPOC in Fibre, they had to turn to crowdfunding to, to get that website online. So how, how can schemes such as, how can platforms such as that be supported? How can they be amplified? How can the voices and the work of people of colour be amplified in these spaces? I think needs a serious looking at. Thank you very much, Karen. Uh, we don't have time for more questions, but just uh, thank everybody who's put a, a question forward. And if we haven't answered it, uh, the email of Karen will appear at the very last slide of our uh, seminar. So you can get in touch with Karen. She said she's happy to receive any queries. And uh, moving on to our second paper. So this is from Heather Curry and Rebecca Florison, which are PEC researchers, but are working at the Work Foundation. And the title of their research is Getting In and Getting On so class participation and job quality in the UK creative industries. Lovely, thanks Roberta. Um, thank you, I'm very delighted to join you this afternoon to take you through some of the research that we've been undertaking over the past six months, um, looking at class uh, participation and job quality um, in the UK creative industries. So this is a paper I've been working on um, with fellow colleagues from the Policy and Evidence Centre uh, including Rebecca Florison, who's policy advisor at the Work Foundation. Uh, also Dave O'Brien, who's a Chancellor's Fellow in the Creative and um, Cultural Industries at the University of Edinburgh, who you're going to hear from later on. Uh, and Neil Lee, who's Professor of Economic Geography at the LSE, uh, who isn't able to join us today. So it's been very much a collective effort. Um, we haven't got very long, so I'm going to spend about uh, 20 minutes taking you through some of our emerging findings um, to leave some time at the end for kind of questions and discussion. 
So this paper is part of the wider programme of work um, that we've been leading on. Um, we completed an evidence synthesis uh, looking at skills, talent and diversity issues in the creative industries, which we published at the end of last year. And clearly a lack of diversity was identified as one of the most critical issues. Uh, and the work also pointed to significant gaps in what we know, uh, particularly um, in terms of having re robust and regular insight on the representation of minority groups in the sector, um, a lack of focus, uh, not just around participation, but equally in better understanding the quality of work that those from disadvantaged backgrounds are able to access and their progression when they're in work. Uh, and also question whether we really understand enough about the underlying barriers and constraints and ultimately what works in overcoming them. So this paper is part of a, a series, what we call a policy review series that will look at diversity and will seek to better understand the effectiveness of the current policy approach. Um, we'll work to identify new policy programmes and practices um, that might prove successful in promoting greater inclusivity. So this paper is the first paper in the series and it seeks to explore participation, retention and progression of those from different class origins within the creative industries, uh, critically to establish an up-to-date uh, baseline picture of class. And it's quantitative in focus, so I won't go too much into the methodology, um, but we drew on two main data sets to support our analysis. Uh, the first was uh, the Labour Force Survey, which provides a good amount of information about the class composition of the workforce, as well as selected measures of job quality. Um, and we use the uh, July to September quarters from the LFS, um, ranging from 2014 to 2019. Um, and we also explored additional measures of job quality, retention and progression using the longitudinal survey called Understanding Society. Uh, and we looked at waves from 2009 to 2017. Uh, in both cases, we use parental occupation at age 14 to derive the national socioeconomic classification categories. Um, and then we differentiated these into three separate class backgrounds, um, looking at privileged, intermediate, and uh, what those from working class origins. So what did we find? I'll wish you through some of the um, emerging findings from this paper. So at a headline level, um, our research echoes wide work and points to persistent systemic underrepresentation of those from working class backgrounds in the sector. Uh, so this shows the class composition of the creative industries, of those employed in creative occupations specifically, um, compared for all professional occupations and all occupations in the UK workforce. And you can see that the majority, so 52% of those working in creative occupations in 2019 were from, uh, were from privileged backgrounds, um, despite comprising just a little over one third, so 37% that's left on the right um, of the total workforce. Uh, in contrast, just 16% of employment in creative roles uh, were filled by those from working class backgrounds and that compares to 21% of those in all professional occupations uh, and 29% across all occupations as a whole. Now beyond looking at the overall profile of the creative industries workforce uh, we also uh, sought to look at uh, odds ratios so which provide an indication essentially of the relative chance of being employed in creative occupations depending on class origin. And you'll see a trend here over the past five years 
for which we have data. So what you can see is that those from privileged backgrounds are more than twice, so 2.5 uh, times as likely to end up in creative occupations than their working class peers. So if you look in uh, 2019, just 4.4% of adults um, from working class backgrounds found employment in creative roles compared to 10.9% of those from better off backgrounds. That's the top line, the pink line at the top. So this suggests that social mobility is actually a greater issue in the creative industries than for all professional roles. Um, given analysis from the Social Mobility Commission finds that those from better off backgrounds are 1.5 times more likely to land in any professional roles. Further, while the overall chance of people landing in the, creat in the creative occupation has increased over time, irrespective uh, of their class origin, you can see all of these lines on an upward trend. And that's simply because the industry has been growing and accounted for a growing share of employment in the UK economy. What you can see is that the differential between the outcomes of those from privileged and working class backgrounds has remained largely unchanged over the past five years for which we have data. So our research sought to explore the picture of class within different creative subsectors and occupations. And um, what we found, so what's very clear is that class imbalances exist in every part of the creative industries with the exception of class. Uh, and that the dominance of those from privileged backgrounds was most pronounced and persistent in publishing, where they account for 58% of the workforce, uh, music, performing visual arts, where they accounted for 57% of the workforce, and advertising and marketing, where they accounted for over 55%. And the chart here on the right shows a, a more detailed breakdown of class origin of those working in creative occupations. And I think it's quite important to note that there are several creative occupations that are excluded from this chart, uh, given data suppression on the grounds of uh, potential disclosure uh, or low unweighted basis. What I would say, these roles listed in this chart here do account uh, for 75% of total employment in creative occupations. So we're looking at a good share of the sector. And I think what's particularly concerning is that you can see that pr the privileged, people from privileged backgrounds really dominate uh, key creative roles in the sector. So we pulled out some of these in the text on the left hand side. Uh, and what it shows is that those from privileged backgrounds are over four times more likely to be working as advertising and PR directors or marketing and sales directors. So very senior creative roles in that industry. Similarly, if you look at publishing uh, and what you find are um, those from privileged backgrounds are three times more likely to be working as authors or writers or translators. Um, they comprise 59% of the workforce in those occupations. Uh, and similarly as journalists, newspaper uh, and periodical editors where they comprise 58% of the workforce employed in those roles. Similarly, in IT software computer services, 57% um, of IT and telecoms directors are from privileged backgrounds. And we see, again, then dominating the majority of people employed as programmers or software development professionals. The trend is also true when we look at film, TV and radio, where 54% of art officers, producers and directors uh, are from a privileged background. So there are very um, you know, mounting concerns around social class inequalities in the creative industries. 
Um, and thus far though, the literature is generally neglected to provide a detailed analysis of the experience of those from different class backgrounds when they're successful in securing a creative role. So our work has sought to try to fill this gap using the secondary data sources I referenced earlier by exploring the experiences of those from different class backgrounds working in creative occupations across a range of measures of dual quality. So um, we looked in detail at a lot of different measures. I think it's fair to say we actually found quite little difference when we looked at uh, employment status, uh, whether they were permanent or temporary, uh, working patterns, full-time, part-time, um, where there was very little differential really between the profile of um, work and work status uh, of those working class backgrounds compared to their privileged uh, counterparts, nor actually in their desire to work more hours or work less hours uh, or to find a different job or an additional job. However, um, those from working class backgrounds in creative occupations tend to earn less uh, than those from privileged backgrounds although it's important to note that clearly overall there are higher average earnings in the creative industries which actually means that those employed in the sector are generally better off financially than those working in other parts of the economy irrespective of class origin. Generally we also observe um, quite marginal differences when it comes to job satisfaction and job security of workers of different class origin working in creative occupations um, but there is, however, evidence of variation in job flexibility and job autonomy. Uh, and these are the charts shown at the top of the screen on the left and right hand side, respectively. So those from working class backgrounds are found to be more likely to report being able to work flexi time or from home. Um, they're slightly less likely, though, to have the option of job share or to work on call. Um, looking at the right hand side, looking at different measures of control, job autonomy, those from working class backgrounds are generally found to consistently experience less autonomy than their privileged peers working creative occupations, except in the manner by which they go about their job. Um, but the differences between the classes are most pronounced when you consider control over job tasks, uh, task order and working hours. So additionally, looking beyond looking at job quality, we sought to assess whether those from different class origin were more or less likely uh, to move into managerial positions within creative roles. Uh, and what we find is those from working class backgrounds are less likely to be managers. Uh, and these speak to, I'm speaking to the bars at the bottom of the screen here. Um, they're less likely to have supervisory responsibility than their uh, middle and upper middle class peers. And the differential is really wide, I'm kind of talking about a um, 12 percentage point difference here. So really significant differences between the experiences of those from working class origin compared to their privileged peers. They're also slightly less likely to have participated in training in the past three months, which is clearly a concern. Although, um, you know, it's important to note that the differential is less pronounced. Um, but taken together, it echoes wider evidence from the sector um, that even when those from class, working class backgrounds are successful at getting into a creative role, they face further obstacles um, to progressing in the sector. So our findings um, suggest that class is a really important determinant of whether uh, or not people are successful at getting in and getting on in the creative industries. 
but we're very conscious that its class is not the only factor at play here. So this, uh, so you know, research points to wider inequalities and exclusions associated, as we've, as we've just heard, with an individual's gender or ethnicity, whether they have a disability or a long-term health condition, uh, and also where they live in the UK. So this chart here is sought to look at those individual components of potential disadvantage and shows both the odds of them landing in a creative occupation and of course the odds ratio being the differential that lies between the, the orange line. So taking gender on the left hand side here, you can see that men are 80% more likely to land a creative role. Uh, similarly, looking at disability, you'll see that those that are healthy and able-bodied are around 20 to 30% more likely than those with a disability or long-term condition to be employed in creative occupations. So while that's very significant, what's particularly interesting, of course, uh, is where the differences between the odds, the odds ratios, um, are greatest. Uh, and as we've seen earlier in the presentation, those from privileged backgrounds are two and a half times more likely than those from working class backgrounds to be employed in creative occupations. But actually only person, uh, people, only a person's qualification has a greater impact. So um, those with a degree or a higher education qualification are three times more likely than those qualified at GCSE level or below. So how do these factors interact uh, and potentially compound disadvantage? Uh, I mean, this is a um, this is an area of our analysis we're currently working on at, at the moment. Um, we sought to look at the intersection of gender and class, um, also gender and ethnic, um, class and ethnicity, disability and, uh, and class, and similarly qualifications and class. So these are the charts that you'll see here. So um, speaking to the chart on the top left-hand side, um, which looks at gender and class, we find that privileged males are nearly five times more likely than working class women uh, to secure roles in the creative industries. Speaking to the top right-hand chart, when we look at the intersection of ethnicity and class, you'll see it's, uh, the picture is less clear and this is something we're exploring. You might have noticed this actually from the previous slide looking at, um, at the odds ratios, but genuinely we feel this is very skewed um, by the spatial concentration of the creative industries in ethnically diverse parts of the UK, particularly London, uh, and also the diversity of certain subsectors like IT. Uh, which accounts for nearly um, half of the creative um, workforce. So we're starting to get to grips with this intersection of ethnicity and class. It's an area we're looking at in more detail. What we see from the bottom left-hand side is that disability and class also compound. So if you're privileged and able-bodied, you stand a one in 10 chance of landing a creative job uh, compared to just 3% of those who are disabled and working class. And then most significantly of all is the intersection between class and skills, which we see on the bottom right hand side, where we see a really pronounced effect. So those from privileged backgrounds that are armed with a degree are more than five times more likely to be employed in a creative job than those who are working class and poorly skilled. So key takeaways from this. Um, I think just to whiz through some of these overarching findings today, I think overall our work 
you know, echoes wider concerns about widespread and persistent class imbalances in the creative industries. We see that uh, those from privileged backgrounds are more than twice as likely to land a job in the sector. They earn more. They're more likely to have progressed into managerial roles. Um, they dominate key creative roles in the sector. You know, they shape what goes on stage, um, what goes on page, what goes on screen. Um, you know, our 2019 data offers little by way of reassurance to those that are concerned that talented individuals from working class origin might make it into roles that comprise, you know, there are our curators, our authors, our musicians, our artists, our filmmakers. And perhaps most concerningly is that despite growing awareness of the issues and action actually by business and government and industry stakeholders to promote greater inclusion, the hard truth is that efforts to date, while they're, you know, well-meaning, uh, are falling short. Um, and that the likelihood of someone from a working class background finding work in a creative occupation has remained largely unchanged for the past five years. And that's just during the time we can measure it. Uh, and I'm sure we'd all hazard a guess that it hasn't improved in the years or decades before then either. So this raises some big questions that we're looking to start to address uh, through the rest of the work we're doing on this paper, but more significantly through the policy review series. Uh, and the first is how significant class is in the mix. Um, you know, how much of a difference does it make? You know, does the job your parents did when you were growing up uh, make in your chances of getting in and getting on in the creative industries compared to, say, um, your own qualifications? Similarly, um, how much of that observed difference uh, in terms of participation and earnings and progression is accountable to other factors like your qualifications or where you live. Um, so we're in the midst of some regression analysis that Neil Lee's leading on that will start to consider the relationship between class participation and various indicators of job quality uh, and which we will report on when we publish the paper uh, later this month, early next month. But I think more widely, just to close, we really need to ask ourselves if we really fully understand and, and, and are addressing the underlying obstacles that those from working class backgrounds face. You know, we're not having traction on this issue. How can we uh, evolve and enhance our approach so that we're really able to start to shift the dial on diversity in a significant and sustained way. You know, what will it take to build genuinely open and inclusive creative economy that creates opportunities for all, that maximises talent, that enables people, all workers, to thrive irrespective of their socioeconomic background? Uh, and they are questions that we will be wrestling with uh, as we work through the rest of this programme of work um, which will span for the next three and a half years and will form a central plank of our work under the Skills, Talent and Diversity work strand of the Policy and Evidence Centre. So I will pause there for questions. Thank you very much, Heather. The, there are loads of questions already, but uh, I'll try. There are some which I think are more technical in terms of the methodology of, uh, you know, the data that you've used. So one is asking uh, whether the data is longitudinal in the sense that it's following the same individual during the years, or what I must assume, or is longitudinal just as a data set? Perhaps. Uh, I could answer that. 
Yeah, I was just going to use it as an opportunity to bring Rebecca in. <laughs> Hi all. So um, I did a good bit of the, the data analysis for this. And um, so how that worked is that initially we just looked at the composition of the workforce using the labor force survey. So that uses, um, I think, the same people across just one year and across uh, four different waves. So that data is not longitudinal because we then analyze year by year by year. So those are all different people across time. Uh, but it's meant to be representative of the population. So they might survey 40 people or 200 people somewhere and then upscale that to estimate um, how large the population will look overall. Um, so we can't really see there which people are moving in and out of the creative industries or the creative occupations. So what we did as, as well as part of the analysis um, was we used understanding society and that is in fact a longitudinal survey so they um, asked the same questions um, to the same people every two years and that really allowed us to uh, compare for example in 2009 who was working in a creative occupation and who then nine or what is it seven years later was still in the creative occupation the interesting thing is though that we really saw that some people moved in and out and sort of bounced uh, out of creative occupations and back sometimes as much as three times across uh, six or seven years Thank you. Uh, the other, um, there is a question which I think is uh, specifically to music, but I assume it, it really refers to a lot of other sectors and is more kind of the representation of the employed versus self-employed. Yeah, so I mean, I, I've just seen that question. So in terms of music, we have about 12% of the, it jumps about a bit to be fair, looking at music. Um, linked to the sample size, but 12% um, of the music and performing and visual arts workforce are from working class backgrounds, 57% from privileged backgrounds. Speaking to the point around the disaggregating by employed and self-employed, I mean, it's absolutely something we'd like to look at. Uh, I think the challenge as ever is the way in which we cut the data. So we're kind of, particularly when it comes to the understanding society data sets, we're relatively limited in the extent to which we can cut the data further. So it's not something that we're able to report on. What I would say, and there are other questions in the Q&A, kind of linking to um, examples of sex and places in the UK and beyond. I mean, all of the, I mean, it's a great question. And actually the second phase that we'll be moving into this month will start to A, kind of synthesize evidence from the UK and internationally um, of the nature of the issue, the, understand, uh, the underlying um, challenges and barriers and also that point around um, what we've tried and what, what's worked. So while it's not something that we can report on quantitatively, it's something we definitely need to understand qualitatively and beyond an evidence synthesis, we're going to be starting to talk to people uh, specifically actually in publishing, in advertising and in film and TV, where we know focusing on some of those key creative roles I referred to earlier, we know the issues are more pronounced. Uh, and there we're going to try and talk to, we're currently um, securing our project partners and discussing the methodology, but we want to head towards speaking to a hundred people working in um, those types of occupations in the creative industries from a working class background that can really help bring to life some of these issues and help us better understand, you know, what's causing them, if they've experienced um, positive change in the past and what that looks like but more specifically starting to understand what might actually work in helping overcome obstacles that they experience throughout their kind of life journey into and progressing once in work in the creative sector.
Thank you. There are two questions which are connected and I think could be possibly connected really to policy and the implication of your work. One is in relevance to can you read any impact of widening participation programs in terms of entering higher education and how obviously higher education seems to be in a barrier and how those programs could be obviously made available to a broader sector of the uh, society, but also in relationship to internship and sort of other ways into the sector that might not be as fair or as equitable yeah i mean I, I think it's a really good question we hosted a before the world shut down uh we hosted a face-to-face -face workshop back in february we had a really great panel starting to talk about some of the issues and what's really interesting is um although we were able to articulate a range of problems i mean a huge range of problems actually access to education aspirational barriers hiring practices cult workplace culture sponsorship uh, you know, platforms, risk-taking. Um, what we actually weren't very good at is articulating how that plays out in somebody's life as they, you know, grow from a working-class background. Um, and so I think that kind of mapping is something that we really need to do next. And yeah, I mean, the point around widening um, participation in higher education, um, one of the other work strands that we're progressing through the PEC is a skills monitor that this year will focus specifically around the supply side infrastructure and the pipeline of talent coming into the industry. And when we do that, I want to see if we can get data that does start to look at socioeconomic background um, to provide an indication of the extent to which education and access to the right kind of education, because I mean, that's the other factor in all this is we know that all, uh, you know, not all HE courses are equal. Increasingly, actually, what we're trying to do is better signal the ones that do develop more technical skills, that do provide higher quality, more work-ready graduates. And actually, it'd be a really interesting ask to see the extent to which those from working-class backgrounds are really tapping into the highest quality opportunities available in the sector. Um, so it's something we'll look at then. And similarly, as we start to do that mapping through a person's life, I mean, internships is going to be one of the issues that we come across. It's also, interestingly, one of the things employers are talking a lot about in terms of how they can change their own practices. So as we move into the latter stages of the series, working directly with industry, and we are going to be talking to industry and employers, you know, those are the types of practical things that employers can change that could make a really big difference to the picture of class um, imbalances in the sector. Thanks a lot, Edda and Rebecca. We need to move on to our next paper, but uh, apologies for everyone that didn't got an answer, but we'll definitely forward those questions to Edda and Rebecca. You can get in touch with them. The, their emails will be on the last slide of the presentations. Um, now moving on to our keynote, which in any way is connecting with the work of Rebecca and Edda, so possibly will link into the next session of the discussion, which is Dave, Dr. Dave O'Brien, which is based at the University of Edinburgh, but working with pack on these uh, topics and he's going to talk about I was the only an intersectional analysis of social mobility into culture and creative occupations. Thank you Dave. Thanks uh, and thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm going to talk um, basically uh, I'm not actually going to say anything that you haven't heard already uh, so you know don't be too disappointed. Um, I'm going to talk about um, some explanations for some of the statistics Heather has been talking you through um, and I'm also going to echo a lot of what uh, Karen um, has been saying over the course um, of her talk as well. Um, the analysis is drawn from this book that um, Orion Brook, Mark Taylor and myself 
have written. It's coming out with Manchester University Press um, in September of this year. And it's designed to move from statistics about who does what in the cultural labour force, statistics about who goes to what and who uh, consumes what in terms of cultural production, and then try to think about how we explain these patterns using uh, interview data. So I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, methods and what the interview data tells us shortly. In the book, but also, as you've already heard, we know that there are uh, crucial issues around class in the labour force for cultural occupations. Um, and again, just to echo what Heather's been saying, um, if we look over the course um, of the last four or five years, uh, what we can see is that uh, things have been pretty static in terms of class representations. We've seen uh, essentially the continued dominance of those um, from what we might think of as kind of middle-class origins, middle-class starting points, and the continued exclusion of those from uh, working-class origins or uh, working-class starting points. This isn't a particularly new problem for cultural and creative occupations, and um, this um, data that you can see, um, the data that uh, Heather, Rebecca, Neil and I have been working on is from the Labour Force Survey, but we've also used uh, longitudinal uh, sur survey data um, from the um, census um, to show that these kinds of trends, these uh, longer standing exclusions uh, of those from the workforce by uh, class origin have been with us uh, since at least the early 1980s, if not before. And this um, trend in class-based exclusions is the same irrespective really of the broader changes in the class composition of the economy overall so even though uh, we've got more middle class origin people uh, in the economy overall um, we can still see the middle class dominance um, of cultural and creative occupations now part of this is to do with a broader set of discussions in the social mobility uh, literature uh, what we can see in, in the social mobility literature are a set of arguments um, about um, whether social mobility is getting worse, whether it's stayed the same, um, whether it's uh, in some cases slightly improving over time. And some of this is quite technical. It depends on differences uh, in data sets. It depends on differences in, in approaches between, uh, in particular, economists and, and sociologists. But we can see some consensus. Um, that social mobility, um, even if it's static, uh, which is one position in the literature, um, is a bit of a problem in particular occupations. Um, so, for example, um, the continued, I guess, microclass, we might call it, replication uh, of inequalities in things like medicine. Um, and we can see the way that these inequalities are, are matched in cultural and creative occupations. Policy has been very interested in this. Um, set of what we might think of as kind of micro-class problems um, because of broader discussions of things like fairness um, and in certain circles um, the idea of social justice uh, as opposed to the more I guess kind of technical um, idea about social mobility. So if there's a general or broad policy interest and if there's um, I guess some limited consensus in the academic literature, why would we need to think beyond uh, what the statistics have been telling us? And I think we, we've heard this already from 
Heather and, and, and Karen's um, presentations. And, and I think the issues here are, are twofold really. One is that um, our nationally representative data can show us the patterns um, that are going on in the labour force, but they can't really show us the experiences that I guess the kind of the what it's like to be uh, subject um, to exclusions or to having one's career uh, thwarted or um, having the possibility of success limited as a result of one's, in this case, social class. But the second thing is um, our nationally representative data sets find it very difficult to tell us about small subsections of the population and specific demographic groups. What we can say from our um, kind of, they're not big, but our administrative uh, data picture, our uh, nationally representative survey picture, is that specific uh, demographic groups um, do uh, much worse than others. And in particular, uh, working class women of colour seem to be the ones who are most excluded uh, from the workforce and, and tend to do um, kind of their outcomes in the workforce are, are the worst of any demographic group. Bringing these two ideas together about the kind of experiential uh, elements and then the need to focus in on uh, specific demographic groups that are hard uh, to study from uh, nationally representative data sets brings us to uh, another area, which is how we can think about the specific uh, career trajectories. In particular, how we can explain things like the continued dominance of specific social uh, and demographic groups in particular occupations. So, for example, the ongoing discussion about leadership um, in the museum's uh, galleries sector, um, the um, fairly constant now um, discussions about who wins awards, who gets to be at the top of industries such as acting uh, or film and television and, you know, things like the BAFTAs nominations last week and the dominance uh, of, uh, of men um, in that um, set of, of nominations. Um, we can also see this as well in terms of who gets to appear on stage and who gets to be, you know, kind of lauded uh, with uh, headlining sets in the music industry. So th there are really good reasons to, to think about how we can um, push on and complement uh, nationally representative data sets when we're thinking about social mobility. The thing here as well is the need to go beyond just uh, a focus on social class and to think about how social class intersects with other demographic characteristics. And in order to understand this, um, the project that Culture is Bad for You is drawn from did over 200 interviews with those working in cultural and creative occupations. Um, we tried to get at least 20 per sector, so we had um, a fairly kind of representative uh, picture of individual cultural occupations. And we also um, followed or, or tried to um, kind of look at the broad patterns that nationally representative data suggested we should be um, trying to mimic with specific uh, boosts for those that we knew were underrepresented. And what I'm going to do now for the rest of the talk is basically just tell you the story um, of four different individuals and how um, their careers were differentiated by class, race and gender. And in particular, I'm going to try and tease out the differences um, between um, class and race and how they operate um, to show 
how some uh, demographic groups not only do better than others, um, but are able to, uh, I guess, um, reach positions of power, which um, if we were being kind of strong, maybe we'd say dominate uh, others, but at least um, have a particular influence um, on uh, demographic groups who are consistently excluded and consistently doing uh, quote unquote worse than others. I'm going to frame this in, in a couple of different ways, uh, drawing on uh, two uh, major theoretical insights. One is this idea that there's a, uh, an embodied or somatic norm in cultural and creative occupations. Um, this is drawn from the work of Nermal Buwar, who uh, is a sociologist who works at Goldsmiths. Her work was primarily focused on the British civil service to try and understand how it was that the top end of the British civil service was particularly monocultural um, and seemed to be dominated by uh, white men from middle-class origins. Um, her work teased out the idea that there was a particularly um, kind of uh, embodied form of uh, what it meant to be a senior civil servant. Um, that this was, um, I, and again, you know, this kind of picks up on stuff Karen uh, was talking about, that the idea of, you know, uh, expertise, the idea of being able to deliver judgments um, stuck to or was associated with white male uh, and upper middle class bodies. Uh, meaning that uh, those who didn't share this embodied set of characteristics um, would have, you know, quite a difficult time, whether it was in terms of outright or explicit discrimination, or whether it was in terms of feeling uh, excluded and finding it difficult um, to kind of thrive or, or bring their, their whole selves to work. In the cultural sector, we found uh, something really, really similar. Um, which I'm, I'm going to uh, elaborate on using some interview data. But there are important differences uh, with uh, the somatic norm in the civil service. Our cultural workers, we found um, the somatic norm still attached to whiteness, uh, was still influenced by middle classness, uh, was still uh, bound up with, with maleness and, and, and a particular kind of masculinity. But it was also uh, liberal, very open. Uh, very meritocratic and crucially was bound up with the idea of being a kind of omnivorous or open cultural consumer. Um, and, and this, I think, is an important distinction to bear in mind. And, and we'll see this play out uh, when, when we talk about our final uh, case study individual. The other thing that we're interested in is from American research on um, how elite firms end up as monocultures. And this is the idea of hiring as a form of, of cultural matching, which is um, a phrase that uh, we draw on Lauren Rivera's uh, work uh, in, in America. Um, Rivera found that um, hiring wasn't just about skill sorting and kind of matching particular skill sets to particular occupations, but at the same time, uh, what was going on was a, a quest for a, a cultural match between individuals and occupations. Some of this was to do with uh, how people would kind of fight for individuals in the uh, hiring process, how they champion them. Others were uh, judgments about uh, a fit and wanting to work uh, with someone. This isn't just about kind of, you know, shared taste, but was, was often to do with shared experiences, whether it was of elite educational institutions uh, or whether it was kind of elite spaces in terms of, of pastimes as well as tastes. 
And again, you know, we, we, we kind of differentiate or we, we, we try and draw some sort of distinctions here by teasing out the way that in culture and creative jobs, and this draws on Cotman's uh, work, the uh, importance of kind of eclectic shared taste patterns is really, really crucial here. Um, so it's not just about, um, you know, kind of having a particular kind of elite interests, but being seen to be kind of open to everything, being interested, uh, being one of our contemporary omnivores was likely to help the uh, hiring process. This is in addition to what we already know about cultural labour markets, which is the importance of networks, the uh, likelihood of very fast turnaround in terms of projects and the need for uh, minimizing financial risks through appointing people that quote unquote are trusted, thus leading to quite narrow uh, circles of hiring and quite narrow, uh, I guess, kind of uh, workforce teams or um, project teams or indeed quite narrow institutions. So how does some of this play out? Let's start with Hannah. So we're drawing on Hannah um, for a couple of reasons. Hannah told us about her experiences in the film industry. She told us how film wasn't a meritocracy. Um, it, she told us, you know, what matters is who you know. Um, she told us that uh, as a working class woman of colour, she was often marginalised because the men doing the hiring in the film industry uh, were comfortable with other men, other what she called white dudes. Um, and this really limited her ability to make it. We, we think Hannah's a useful example here because um, she was someone who had an incredible set of privileges um, as she came into the film industry. Uh, she was educated at extremely kind of uh, elite uh, university institutions, uh, both in the UK and, and elsewhere. Um, she had considerable family resources. She, you know, she was from a, a middle-class uh, occupational starting point, but she still experienced the uh, subtle and not so subtle forms of institutionalized racism in the film industry. Some of it driven by the way that films um, kind of labor markets work. Um, some of it also driven um, by just the kind of the sense uh, of her not being the right kind of person in place, her being a bolshy brown woman, as she said, um, as opposed to uh, one of the white dudes who were able to kind of uh, be better connected and to make it. For Hena, she was driven um, to, to kind of tell different stories uh, and she felt that it was really, really important for her to make it so that she could uh, be, a, I guess, a kind of a, a different or an alternative representation to the quite closed uh, picture of uh, who gets to work in the film industry, you know, uh, both in terms of telling different stories, but also in terms uh, of having, a, I, I guess, a kind of, you know, her name on a film poster, um, you know, being a name that isn't usually uh, associated with films. But what we found as we were kind of doing this research and we were thinking about who gets to get in and who gets to get on was that part of uh, Hannah's ability, I guess, to kind of be um, uh, an alternative name, be able to tell different stories, were the resources that came from her class origin. Um, here we can see, uh, as you know, people like Nicola Rollock have, uh, have written about, you know, uh, there's an extensive literature on this now, the, the way that uh, the intersections of class and race 
maybe afford um, individuals a certain um, kind of set of, of progress, um, particularly in terms of the economic resources we associate with class, but there's still not enough to kind of um, really sort of uh, blow away or, or, or dismantle the barriers associated with race. And, and Hannah was candid about, you know, not knowing how long she could survive in the industry, uh, being unsure whether she'd be able to carry on uh, working uh, in film. When we see uh, working class origin women of colour, we see a similar story, but we see the barriers uh, kind of we might think of them as, as higher, we might think of them as, as more explicit, and we see quite different uh, trajectories in terms of their career. So, so I'll give you two examples. Um, Rachel, uh, who was working around uh, the arts and, and music industries, uh, who had a kind of a consultancy role, and, and that's important, it's important to remember that consultancy role, because I'm going to come back to it told us about just the kind of the explicit experience of being the only person uh, of colour in the room, um, how this was very isolating um, and how essentially her race became a commodity um, that could be commodified um, and strategically used by organisations who were maybe chasing funding or interested uh, in opening up new markets. This phrase, I was the only, was something that came up time and time again for um, people of colour in our uh, data sets, but it was particularly striking at the intersection of race, gender and social class, where our working class origin women of colour were really kind of explicit about how um, the burden, I guess, of being the only woman of colour in the room was also set against uh, a real sense of kind of cultural unease in these key spaces. Uh, for example, um, we, you know, in some of the literature and some of the academic work we might think of as, as the operation of, of cultural capital. Maybe, maybe I'll move on to um, Meg. Yeah, so Meg was in her 20s when we interviewed her. She was working uh, in the theatre industry. Um, she talked about how she didn't really think about the theatre as being somewhere where she might work when she was leaving school. Um, she basically applied for a job in her local theatre uh, because she needed a job. You know, it, it wasn't something that um, she felt, you know, this kind of affinity or, or drive to get involved with, as we might find in, in the data from our uh, white middle class origin. Uh, both actually women and men who told us about, you know, kind of long-standing passions to get involved in the theatre industry. And she was explicit about how it was really difficult, it was really hard, you know, it was very alienating. You know, people would treat her like she was stupid, you, you know, she was kind of keen to stress to us that she just, you know, didn't have the kind of articulation, the kind of language um, that um, was expected in, in a theatre space. Um, but actually what what went on, one of the kind of problems uh, she found were, was that um, some individuals would just assume this was a kind of, you know, uh, a deficit that she had as an individual rather than something that was a mismatch between um, her, whether we'd call it cultural capital or cultural resources, and the institutional setting of the theatre. Meg's trajectory uh, mirrored uh, Rachel's trajectory. And what was interesting to us was that um, as we talked to both of them about their careers, and actually this is, you know, something that came up time and time again, was that the combination of the commodification uh, of their, their race, the commodification 
um, of in this case um, blackness in both uh, the music industry and, and the theatre industry meant that they were shuffled out of institutional positions um, and ended up as consultants. They were able to make uh, quite good livings, uh, working freelance on various projects, um, doing uh, project-based uh, consultancy work. But the issue uh, that they found was that um, it was a, you know, an uncomfortable uh, bargain. Um, here we can see Meg saying, uh, similarly to Rachel, you know, that people would um, kind of ask her if she was from the ghetto or. Uh, you know, people would um, kind of single her out because of the colour of her skin. And she encountered, you know, really kind of um, explicit narratives of the commodification of her, of her race. You know, one of her bosses towards the end of that quote um, told her that, you know, she was hired because she was black, you know, because, um, you know, they wanted the kind of the next generation to be uh, engaged and, and encouraged. Um, and in some ways this, you know, had given her opportunities, but it had also kind of undermined her in the institutional setting in which she was working, because this question of uh, being hired because of her race attached to her, it stuck to her, it never really kind of went away. This came up time and time again with our um, women of colour, um, and that intersection of uh, race, gender and, uh, and class meant that we, we began to see explanations for the lack of kind of, uh, you know, senior leadership roles, the lack of diversity in uh, whether it's the film industry or, you know, the visual arts um, museums in, in the theatre industry, explained through things like, you know, subtle labour market uh, exits that you know, were, were empowered decisions in some cases to kind of set up on their own, to, you know, to become uh, consultants, to, to go freelance, but also um, the way that institutions would essentially kind of churn through individuals um, and end up to some extent kind of using them um, for their uh, race, gender, um, but less so for their social class, because that wasn't really on the agenda as a protected characteristic that could be commodified. I'm going to conclude by offering a comparison. I think I've got sort of three, four minutes left. Usually papers kind of stop here, you know, in terms of laying out the problem um, of exclusions based um, on race, class and gender. But our work's tried to kind of um, think through um, the other side uh, to this story. So I'm, I'm going to introduce you to uh, Andrew. Andrew was what we think of as the somatic norm in the cultural and creative industries. He was a white, uh, white middle-class origin man uh, working across uh, publishing and the performing arts. Um, he was, you know, you know, the kind of textbook definition of, of someone who makes it. There wasn't really a struggle for him as, as he kind of got in, you know, he never told us he was the only, he never told us he felt out of place. Indeed, it, you know, his experience of job interviews um, was that uh, when, you know, he, he kind of went, he, he made a sort of a virtue of ignorance, you know, um, he'd talk about um, the particular art form that he ended up working in, um, not really kind of, you know, knowing much about it, being kind of, you know, modest, uh, about his uh, kind of understanding and uh, his experience uh, and that being something that paid off. I, I, I've drawn that first quote uh, as, a, as a kind of 
uh, a juxtaposition um, with the, the, the language, you know, so for Andrew, when I was the only, he talked about I was the only person that was seen for a job rather than I was the only person of colour in, in the room. You know, a, a much kind of more straightforward and much easier career trajectory as opposed to our working class origin women of colour um, for a variety of different reasons. Um, you, know, you know, for him, he, he was really aware actually of these problems. You know, he made it clear to us that, you know, uh, in the art form he worked in, um, that, you know, there was a big gender issue, the people leading um, the particular industry. I mean, you can guess which industry it is from the fact that he's talking about choreographers, but, you, you know, um, the difference between men doing the showy bits on top um, and, you know, you know, kind of women being the ones who did all the real work. Crucially, he, he was kind of defending the cultural and creative industries uh, as being, you know, maybe they're not kind of the worst industries in the world for these sorts of inequalities. And this is something that in the book and in, in some academic papers, we term inequality talk, you know, the ability of uh, the somatic norm, uh, those senior male middle class men to kind of talk through inequalities, but tragically and uh, frustratingly, um, you know, not really kind of doing better or not really changing things. And to wrap up, I'll, I'll give you this um, really uh, quite extensive quote uh, from Andrew about hiring practices. For him, you know, although he was aware of the problems, uh, the aware, he was aware that, you know, um, the arts uh, industries needed to do better and become more diverse, he felt constrained by the fact that, um, it, you know, Jobs were scarce, and uh, as he says, we could talk about diversity, um, but but actually, you know, uh, if you've got one post, you don't want to mess it up. Um, you, you know, you're forced to maintain the undiverse status quo. Um, this, in some ways, is a kind of you know almost sort of sociological uh, analysis of labour markets. You know, there's an oversupply of candidates in many cultural labour markets, so you know, picking quote unquote the best. Uh, is about picking, you know, maybe someone with the most uh, voluntary experience or someone with uh, particular kinds of educational qualifications. But it's also a story of hiring as cultural matching that relegates those who are not from a particular somatic norm to being risky categories. So underneath this idea about, you know, not wanting to fuck things up is the idea that those who are not um, white, male, middle class, those who don't have those social, economic, cultural resources are risky. And, you know, institutions or projects or um, cultural uh, commissioners don't want to be taking risks um, and thus will only hire, will only commission, will only work with those that are already known to them, those that already sadly fit uh, the somatic norm. This, as he, you know, kind of told us uh, in the concluding part of this uh, comment, is a story about, you know, wanting to do better, but actually maybe, you know, the right people aren't kind of turning up, which again is something that we see um, quite often. Uh, he uses uh, disability here. Um, he uses, you know, language that we see and, you know, how the film industry discusses the lack of women directors and producers, uh, how the publishing industry talks about uh, people of colour, time and time again, this sense um, that, you know, we would hire people, we would commission people if they were there. And the question, I guess, you know, that we'd ask is, is it any wonder um, that people aren't, you know, kind of presenting themselves, people aren't there to be hired, if they're, you know, 
self-selecting out of the workforce because of their experiences of not being welcome, uh, their experiences of being you know, alienated, and their experiences of quote unquote being the only, whether it's person of color, woman of color, woman of uh, working class origin um, of color as well. And uh, I'll conclude there, we, we can uh, go to some questions. Thank you very much, Dave. We got already two questions there, but I keep on coming. We're looking for more. So one is uh, kind of, I suppose, uh, thinking about the education policy behind this and sort of asking you to reflect on the role of education in this uh, sort of hindering inclusivity. Yeah, um, so here I draw on the excellent work of Roberta Communion and her <laughs> colleagues um, and just raise the question of um, the exact fit between kind of cultural creative um, education, uh, what, you know, communion et al call kind of bohemian subjects, and then actually working in the creative sector. And I think the really important thing for many of these, particularly elite spaces, isn't really having a quote unquote creative subject, but actually is going to the kinds of institutions that create elite networks. So in some ways, you know, you're better off doing kind of English Lit at Oxford and Cambridge or one of the big London institutions than you are doing a, a creative subject. And indeed, you know, whilst we have to defend creative education in schools, it's really important we defend things like art and drama and, you know, there is a, a, a profound and definite crisis. The, the question, I guess, is more what drives the lack of diversity. It's less actually, I'd argue, educational mismatches and more broadly to do with how the education system filters and favours people into specific institutions that then play an outsized influence, uh, play an outsized role in uh, connecting people to uh, cultural jobs, particularly at the high end, Oxford and Cambridge. Thank you. There is a question from HK about uh, trying to uh, detect how much about this is about British, uh, you know, context and how much this stretches to represent possibly this uh, act in, in exclusivity and class issues in broader contexts like Europe or even other countries internationally. Yeah, I mean, like obviously, the you know, talking about class immediately marks you out in that kind of British way. But actually, if you look at um, you know, stratification uh, by whether it's parental education, uh, stratification by parental occupation, the kind of, um, I, I suppose, categories of stratification that don't have the cultural baggage of uh, social class, you see really similar issues uh, in, in lots of different places. So, you know, research coming out of the States on the publishing industry, um, on um, visual arts, on the theatre industry, it, it, you know, th this stuff comes up um, pretty straightforwardly in, in similar ways. In some ways, we're, we're lucky in Britain because um, the kind of the key data set, the Labour Force Survey has got uh, this information on um, parental uh, class, of, um, parental occupational uh, data that allows us to give um, kind of statistics on, on social class, but actually, although there are individual, you know, kind of differences, uh, the dynamics of individual countries are, are different, um, you, you see really similar patterns. I mean, I'm thinking of stuff like, uh, there, there was a lot of work done on uh, actors in, in France and Switzerland by some colleagues, um, and you saw similar issues. Um, Vince uh, Dubois' book on who works as kind of cultural managers, the, the class issues are really 
kind of clear there, except he uses education as, as the kind of proxy for uh, social stratification. There is here a question around the cultural matching with the hiring. Is the issue that is more pervasive in creative industry than in other industries? So, you know, because maybe it's a kind of a niche market, there isn't that many jobs, or is it actually something that is just, uh, you know, reproduced by the lack of diversity of the sector itself? So how much is this specific to the creative industries rather than broader? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things going on. Uh, one is um, that the kind of the cultural match is, is different. And Cotman's paper is, is really great on this. And we, we basically just kind of like follow it quite directly in, in the sense that, you know, to get into a top law firm, the sorts of kind of omnivorous, off the wall, slightly kind of quote unquote weird cultural consumption um, that you'd, you'd want to kind of display the sort of embodied uh, cultural instincts and attitudes wouldn't be useful in particular professional settings such as medicine or, or law and Freeman and Lorison have a really neat comparison um, of things like being a TV commissioner versus being an accountant um, or you know working in a um, kind of professional services firm that said though I mean you know this process is uh, pretty well observed and pretty standard across uh, elite settings and in some ways you, you know um, it's something that um, is, you know, a, a kind of a common issue across many different uh, non-elite settings as well. So we don't want to be, you know, too um, kind of, we, we don't want to say the culture and creative industries are too different, although there are specific dynamics. And indeed, many of the things I've been talking about today and, and also the things, you know, that came up in Heather and, and Carol's uh, papers, uh, Karen's uh, papers and, and, and presentations, uh, really examples of how Britain is, you know, um, kind of socially stratified and socially divided uh, rather than just being things that are specific to culture and creative occupations. And a last question, uh, is there a relationship between the professionalizing discourse and the green requirements of many entry-level posts and how, you know, this, uh, you know, the discourse on the equivalency has been maybe dropped quietly? Yeah, although that's strangely coming back actually um, and we're starting to see a, a sort of differentiation i think uh within um, particularly organizations who are starting to um when they do you know kind of advertising for um say front of house jobs um or you know quote unquote non-creative roles or or whatever that they're um you know kind of not having the standard, you know, uh, degree or degree equivalent is, is needed. It, it's a tricky one that because um, thinking about a, uh, a set of institutions or a set of occupations in, in the museum sector, um, the degree thing has become a sort of slightly a red herring, I think, because of the need for experience and the way that uh, the demands for really, you know, kind of extensive volunteering has replaced the barrier that was the degree, say, you know, 30 or 40 years ago when a much smaller proportion um, of the population were going to university. So one of the things I think it's worth kind of keeping in mind is the way that these um, discussions of inequalities are not, you know, static. Um, and the reason that we see these long-term patterns in class inequality is that, you know, uh, almost, you know, kind of regular as clockwork, those from uh, kind of privileged uh, positions um, will find, you know, kind of new ways to find advantages 
um, in labour markets, even as people kind of, you know, respond um, and, and try and, you know, kind of combat um, or, you know, try and address inequalities. We are running over time, but there's a last, well, there's two questions which really cover the same thing, which is really about what is the, then the vision for the future? How can we change things? What, you know, what can happen that makes a difference now that we know all of these? Yeah, so I think um, Karen's con conclusion was really great, you know, drawing on um, examples of best practice and, and things that have worked. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a bit more uh, pessimistic, as I say, and you know, it's, it's something I've alluded to, because I, I think uh, the thing we need to start from is that, you know, nothing works forever. And inevitably, these are, you know, kind of almost sort of tactical battles that require um, new tactics and, and new methods. So I'm um, associated with, I'm trying to do some kind of uh, research assistance with the all party parliamentary group for uh, creative diversity who are looking into these questions of what works and what we can see is that you know over time and there's some of this in the literature as well things that seem to work like you know having say unconscious bias training um, maybe generate you know kind of short-term uh, changes but then you know organizations adapt um, those with you know powerful positions adapt Similarly with, you know, kind of forms of commissioning, uh, things like quotas, uh, all of these things, I think, uh, work in different ways, you know, have um, kind of positive and useful influences. But I think we really need to start from the point of view of actually, you know, there are really longer term structural issues that require, um, you know, longer term tactics. And these tactics will inevitably have to change over time. Thanks so much, Dave. Uh, thank you for everyone for staying a bit longer, being patient, but it was a very interesting discussion. And thanks to our keynote and the speakers for the interesting paper and the engaging discussion too. And finally, I would like to thank Asan, but also Emma and Ben and Nesta, who have made this all possible by providing the online facilities and support for the seminars to take place. And thanks again. Take care. Bye. Bye.